Thank you for inviting me. This is my first visit to TIS. I've always wanted to uh, have a lot of interactions with social sciences people. Point I want, the talk I want to give today is how British Orientalism and colonialism, while it's gone, it has been replaced by another kind of Orientalism, which is which I call American Orientalism. And the British Empire just transferred across the Atlantic. So now we have a, an American Empire. So the sort of studies, the look, the studies of the other that were previously being done by the British academics, a lot of those things are being done in a more sophisticated way by the American academics. And of course, the American academics have been much more successful in co-opting Indians into their scheme of things. Um, the British were mostly Goras people doing this kind of work. They didn't have so many brown-skinned people on their team. Uh, the Americans are more sophisticated in bringing others into the scheme of things. So this makes it more complex and more difficult. And when I say American Indology or American, uh, you know, South Asian studies, I'm not using the term American as a race or an ethnicity or a nationality, but as a certain ideological lens, a certain viewpoint. And there are lots of Indians who are into that viewpoint. So I'm looking at more as a kind of the drishti, the perspective in which people are studying. The topic today has to do with um, colonialism. And, I, and the return of colonialism. Colonialism has been sort of an elite enterprise, and previously it was British in cahoots with rajas and kings and Indian elites, which we already know. Post-colonial scholars are studying very carefully, they've done a very good job. But I feel the post-colonial scholars study the dead empire. They are not as courageous to study the living empire, because maybe many of them are funded by it. So uh, it's easy to take people in the 1800s and criticize them and say we're doing post-colonial studies. But not that many are looking at today's continuation of the same, same perspective that goes on. So I, I decided I should do that. Of particular interest to me is um, the relationship between culture and power. So one of the persons I studied was Pierre Bordeaux, a Marxist, French Marxist. His theory on, on uh, culture as a form of capital, cultural capital, the different forms of cultural capital, I'm sure many of you know this, uh, and, and how it is used for power. And then I came across the uh, theory of the aestheticization of power by Benjamin, one of the pioneers in the Frankfurt School of Marxism. Just to give you the background, because that's what I will talk about. In the, when the Nazis rose to power, the Marxists were, Marxists were at a loss to explain why there hadn't been a communist revolution like there had been in Russia. Because in Russia, when the, when the economy was so bad, People were out of work, people were starving, so you know, there was a revolution to overthrow that. In France, there had been the previous century the French Revolution. But in Germany, 
when the economy was in a depression, the question is why wasn't there a similar Marxist revolution? Why is it that one the elite didn't get overthrown by the grassroots people? They got replaced by a different elite. The Nazis were different. So elite X is not overthrown but replaced by elite Y. We have to explain this. And the theory of the theory of aestheticization of power, I think, is a very interesting theory. I largely agree with it. I'll first explain it and then I'll tell you another way to apply the same theory. So the theory of the aestheticization of power says that, uh, some, that it is possible to project power uh, in, in, in a way that you might think of as soft power. Uh, the Nazis were very good at projecting, you know, nation, patriotism, marches, symbols, a lot of theater, a lot of culture, a lot of arts, singing. So uh, they were able to divert people's attention towards the aesthetics. In a very aesthetic way, they were able to project the power and prevent a overthrow, prevent the uh, overthrow of their government. So it's sort of like uh, Nehru has a debacle with China and he has Lata Mangeshkar in Red Fort singing Sare Jaha Se Acha. So that's the aestheticization of power. Everybody's got tears, we're so moved. Rather than saying, hey, you let us down, let's overthrow you. Now we all move, so we are part of that. Or let's say the country is in trouble, so we have cricket match where we are winning, hitting sixers and all that. So everybody into this aestheticization of power. So good, it's like shiny, shiny. So uh, this uh, this aestheticization of power had been developed as a theory in the European context. I got interested in it and heard, heard about it and learned about it through American Indologists, Sanskrit scholars, who use this theory to explain how Sanskrit spread in the same way. So Sanskrit spread not by violence, there was no army like Roman army spreading an empire, but Sanskrit spread throughout Southeast Asia and you know, so many kingdoms. For a thousand years, it was the kind of elite system without any violence. The question is, how did it spread? So they came up with this theory that you can apply an adaptation of this aestheticization of power and explain the rise of Sanskrit. And the theory, the, the, the rise of Sanskrit as theorized by them is as follows. Sanskrit has unique qualities that can be used by the king for aestheticizing his power. He can project his power through Kavya, display of Ramayana. The Ramayana says the king is divine, so the ruling king looks divine. Ramayana says the enemies are Rakshasas, demons, so he can uh, mobilize people to, uh, against his enemies. So the use of such devices uh, is, is something very powerful in Sanskrit. And Sanskrit has according to their theory, uh, built-in system of discrimination and prejudice and oppression. So Sanskrit uh, says these people can't use it, those people can't use it, and uh, the ruling elite have a privileged access to this tool. So Sanskrit is sort of a development tool, the way you have software development tools, and in this development tool you can develop all kinds of uh, kavya and, and you know, 
things like pageantry, nationalism, patriotism, and Sanskrit is unique according to this theory. So, uh, Sanskrit facilitates elitism, uh, which helps power. And then, for this reason, Sanskrit got franchised. Uh, a yajna is performed, which gives the king divine status, and all kinds of uh, kavyas are performed, which uh, hand which facilitate that, which further that. And so, this is a mechanism of spreading power. And so, hence, there is a sort of conspiracy implied between the Brahmins as the technologists of this device, Sanskrit technologists, and the Raja, as, I mean the kings in Asia, Southeast Asia, all over Southeast Asia, as the sponsors. So the king buys into this system, he sponsors the Brahmins who looks after them, and the Brahmins produce all this uh, paraphernalia for uh, you know, the king becoming seen as powerful. And therefore, the public is so aestheticized with this power, so mesmerized, so intoxicated, like the opium of the people, that they don't revolt. So hence, it can, it can, hence the theory says, Sanskrit was sort of franchise, franchise network across a large space. Uh, no other language and cultural system had peacefully spread across such a huge space for such a, for a thousand years or more. So this is the, this term, the term is given Sanskrit cosmopolis, a cosmopolis of many, many independent nations, uh, all under the spell of Sanskrit. So this is the this is the theory of the aestheticization of power. I actually don't have any problem with this. I actually like, even though I'm, I'm critiquing these people, but I think they have it's a it's a very interesting theory. It's quite an interesting theory. So. As I, always, as I often like to do, I sort of played around with this theory to see what else can I do with it. And I realized that the very same theory can be applied back on them. So, these Indologists are aestheticizing power, their power. Now it's American power, it's Anglicized power. Now one of the terms developed by people who came up with this theory is called literarization with an extra er. Litera literization is literary. You just know how to read and write. Literization. But if you add an extra r, r a in it, literarization. So it's not literization, but literarization. That is when uh, it, the, the technology of language goes beyond literization. So it's not just knowing how to read and how to write ordinary things, you know. It's not just a matter of ordering a cup of chai or uh, having mundane conversation, talking about cricket and whatnot. Literalization means that you have taken the language and you have what they call infused it with structures of power. So there is literalization when the language is just useful for reading, writing, common, common talk. And literalization is an elitist weapon of power because the language has now been infused with structures. So the structures of Brahmin, uh, Brahmin power over others, the structures of king, uh, you know, being the divine, the structures of enemies having to be killed, all these kind of structures got infused. So basically these people show that there was earlier simple Sanskrit and then this became infused with all these structures and then that's the age of literalization. And that's when 
So there is liberalization, liberalization, and then a statisization of power, and then this power spreads. This this stage of development, and there is evidence given how one kingdom after another went through this phenomenon. So consistent with that, right now I'm developing this theory of the Americanization of Indian elites. That is what has to do with recolonization of India. The Americanization of Indian elites also involves literalization of English. Literally Sanskrit was easy, people could read. But literalization meant you had to understand certain structures, certain theories, certain siddhant, which other people, most people couldn't understand. So because the elite had access to these structures and therefore they could use these technologies of language, it gave them power. So I claim that the Americanization includes language, which is literalization. But the literalization of social theories being injected, infusing, infusing the English language with social theories of a certain kind, gives it, gives it a certain power in the hands of those who know these social theories. So somebody doesn't know, common, common person doesn't know these theories, the theories may, may pertain to him, they may be explaining him, describing him, but he is not able to talk because he doesn't understand it. These theories are very high flown. You go to very high class universities in foreign countries and get degrees. And if you don't manage to do that, then the next best thing is you bring some people from there who come back and they, they, they teach you. And you climb up the ladder, so the lowest is the student who is consuming all this. And they have to prove that they have understood it in order to advance and then gradually they publish in journals as people trained in this way are teaching, are, 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 are moderating and, and they are the peers and adjudicating and then gradually you climb up the ladder and one day you may get to visit there or get a degree there or be, and one day you may even get some one of these little awards and somewhere along the way you go to the Literary Festival <laughs> and there is a certain aestheticization of power. So now this group of elites who know this lingo, they, they can talk about you know all these sophisticated things. Uh, they are that's a that's I consider this to be uh, unstudied, undiscovered, or unstudied, untalked about aestheticization of power of the Indian elite in this age of Americanization. And the social social scientists have a role in this, and they're not the only ones. I mean, I come from technology background, corporate background in the past and I think people of that kind also have this package. They're also part. So so we are part of this in this globalization there's also globalization of social sciences, globalization of capital, globalization of all sorts of things. But there are certain nexuses which are the hubs of all this. So uh, to what extent so the question I keep asking is to what ex extent is uh, are we uh, are, are is our uh, elite infused with literalized with uh, this kind of new structures that are born somewhere else and consumed here, the franchise here, those who have certified and licensed to come and teach are very privileged. You know, like you could get a Pizza Hut license, you could get a license to teach a certain theory because you're certified and you've got this degree from somewhere, you certified, so it gives you status. How is that really different from the Brahmin elite we're talking about earlier? So, this is very interesting because not only is the sponsor the Western foundations 
funding mechanism, some with CIA links, even now. I mean, they keep getting discovered. Uh, but they, I mean, it's a, it's a it's a free word. Everybody has the right to use their money and promote, and CIA has its rights, and we have a right to talk about it. Okay, so they have a right to do what they do. We have a right to talk about it. Uh, it's not only just that. It's also Indian entrepreneurs, Indian billionaires who look for a seat at the table. One way is you go give $50 million to Harvard, you are now in the inner club of your kind of honorary white. Or you give uh, $25 million to Wharton or something like that, you're part of the ruling elite. So you earn a place there and part of the role you play is that you, you represent that same game here. So now you've got a kind of franchise, you, you've got this franchise, you're playing that game. So this um, loyalty towards, so the intellectuals co-opted in India have to be loyal to the system in terms of the theories, language, literarized structures, uh, aestheticization of power, uh, loyalty to their sponsors, and their career depends on how good a job they can do. And then they are looked after, they're taken care of, it works both ways, so you're loyal to this scheme. <coughs> To you. If you're a rebellious type, you're you you've got you're given ammunition to rebel against your civilization. You say that that's the problem. So you're turned around into that mode. You're discouraged from looking back and saying, "What about the blacks there? What about the Hispanics there uh, in your own country?" Before you export solutions to us, why can't you cure yourself? You see. So that would make you a kind of. Uh, dangerous person to be sidelined. So there is a there is a invisible collar people are wearing. We have a system called invisible collars, invisible fence in the US. I have a dog. So instead of putting the dog inside the house and on a leash, uh, or the, the other option of just leaving the dog open who go running around the street. But there is a technology they put a little chip on the collar which doesn't do anything. And they put a wire under the perimeter that you want the dog to stay in and is connected to the electrical thing. And if the dog tries to cross, you get a shock. So I asked this fellow, how cruel is it? And this is not a not cruel, don't worry. And I said, how do you train this dog? My dog is a very loving dog. You know, I don't want to do this. This is don't worry. You go away for 10 minutes, we train the dog. And what they do is they put flags as visual markers, the dog is so smart, it begins to associate those flags with this chuck. So once, once they take the dog to the fence and two feet away it starts giving a little bzzz kind of signal. And then once they cross the fence and the dog gets shocked and yells and screams very painful and the dog, then they take the dog to every flag, not crossing it, no shock. But just within two feet and the dog here will get the buzz and wants to come back because he associates that this buzz. So first he associates that this buzz will lead to pain if I continue. Then he gets the idea that where the flags are is where this line is. So they, they say you keep it for three days, then you can remove the flag, this dog will never cross. Never even get pain, never cross. This is called the invisible, I call it the invisible fence syndrome. And I think a lot of Indian elite are wearing this collar. They know the line not to cross. They don't 
They don't have to be physically held back. They just know that those flags have been put there. They just know that they are glass ceiling. They are either in the tea We will look after. We get good food. We come to our contact bag at tail. And but we better not cross this. So I, I think there is a there is this technology of invisible fence that a lot of Indian needs are in. ठीक करेंगे आपको जयपुरेटरी वेस्ट में फाइव स्टार ट्रीटमेंट मिलेगा वहाँ बहुत एस्थेटिक होगा। You had twenty year old single mother, वहाँ eighteen year old blind baby. Everybody, no people don't know the difference between one and the other. I called some of these guys to my house and I said, I'll give you a whole case of this eighteen year if you can tell me one versus the other. I will do a blindfoldness test. I had my a friend of mine who knows about all these things. I don't know about all these things. I said, you bring all these favorite things that these guys have, and let's see if any one of them can tell the difference. If you if you, if you don't tell them what is what, and they really can't tell. It's all shoshagiri and kind of aesthetics of power. It's just style, fashion, who's high class, who's who's got more tapas on his passport. In India, at night, center, I sometimes sit and people are comparing who got more tapas on his passport. Telling stories about I went there, how we were there. It's all showing off to the other Indians. Basically, deep complexes. So this is how elitism works. I mean, this is how royalty works all the time. So this um, this uh, business of uh, uh, this aestheticization of power and recolonization through this kind of elite involves control of communication channels. One of the allegations made against the elite Brahmins is that they control communication channels. Others couldn't, others weren't allowed. So they control communication channels. So getting in was the gate to power, the route to power, but not everybody could get in. So today it's similar. I mean, I cannot get myself into mainstream media, and I don't care whether they criticize me or not. They prefer to just ignore. Ignore. I keep uh, when the Hindu attacked me last year, I wrote a. I called a lot of people. They would ignore me. I said, I just want the right to rebuttal. You can write. I will write. We we'll have a discussion, conversation. Why? Why is it a problem? They wouldn't. They were silent. And then someone introduced me to Ravi. He's the brother of Enron. I met him last week in the private gathering. Him and his wife Sudha. They're really wonderful people. So I told him my whole matter, and he was shocked and surprised at the information I was giving him. He said, "This is very interesting that you're telling me all this. This should come out. Yeah, this is a very legitimate site. Nobody knows." And I can't do anything, but uh, because Malini runs uh, the editorial stuff nowadays, so I sent it to Malini, and I sent a note, and maybe she will do something. And Malini, of course, decided not to do anything. So this control of channels, whether it is one-sided media, whether it is literary festivals, whatever. That's why I'm very happy you are here. I'm really very happy. I, I, it is not important whether you like, dislike, criticize. We ought to have conversations. Indians. Should be able to talk to each other. You know, one thing I'll tell you: difference between Indian discourse and American discourse is Americans, no matter how much they disagree with each other, how much they are opposed to each other, they'll go and play golf together. Yeah, they have that kind of a culture also. They'll go and go to the bar, have a drink together. They'll even chat. They'll also be friends, personal friends. You'll find some husband is on one camp and wife is on the other camp, and very opposed in their profession. So they are able to professionalize. Professionalize part of this aesthetics is you. There's an aesthetics of professionalizing your point of view, and it is nothing personal. Very interesting. I I learned this in the corporate world. I learned that uh, sometimes these bitterly fighting lawyers 
who are part of the same organization, they would go and have their fun together, they would go on holidays together, but the court room, they would really fight their cats and dogs. That ability, we don't have, we just take it too personally, we just become literally enemies of each other. It's very sad. Why can't we just disagree and say, okay, you have a point of view, I don't agree with it wrong. I have a different point of view. And maybe we'll argue, maybe we learn a little bit from each other. And maybe at the end of the day, we'll, all, we'll still remain uh, opponents. But we can be friends, we can still make it together. We can still, you know, call each other fine in, in a nice, beautiful way. We don't have that. In India, it's sort of hostility in a, in a bitter uh, hatred, and kind of literal hatred kind of way. And I wonder to what extent it's part of the influence of colonization that we turned into this hatred, which are, you know, one king being made to fight another king and things like that, which in our past to sort of go after each other. And to what extent we are encouraged to, to do this. So, I will, uh, I'll just make a couple more points. Um, the, this idea is beyond left and right. There's nothing leftist or rightist. I think uh, both these so-called wings are part of this aestheticization of power. I find uh, a lot of people, since the new government came into power, a lot of people there are sort of like that. Talked about it. I mean, there are, some have changed, some are always like that. So it's not, uh, it's not a criticism of the left. It's a criticism of the elite of all kinds. The Indian elite have this complex of Americanization, like in the earlier times it was British Anglicization. Previously it was the guy who played polo and his son would be sent to Cambridge and he would marry some white woman and you know they would give this 21 gun salute he'd be on, on an elephant. This was the aestheticization of power. Now it is, these things are not done but more Americanized things are done. The American equivalent of such things. Um, and by the way, there's nothing un-American or anti-American for me to be saying this. I find that uh, the interest for such discussion is huge in the United States compared to India. Because people here are afraid, wondering, but in the United States, there's a large amount of people who do this. Blacks do it, Hispanics do it, Chinese do it. There's a large uh, Islamic studies people who do these things. And, but I would say the blacks are the ones who've done the best job. And then uh, Hispanics, Latin American type people have done a tremendous job. And now Chinese are, they have this lot of uh, studies of this sort that they are uh, sponsoring. Uh, so, the Chinese proudly say that China studies is run by them, not by the Americans. The journals are in Mandarin. They are located in China, the best journals. Their editorial boards are staffed by their people. The conferences, the doctorates. If you want to be a scholar, you've got to be in the good books of the Chinese. It's not like the Americans have to certify who's a Chinese scholar. The Chinese have to certify who are the Chinese scholar. Japan studies here. The Americans have tried to control some of the journals, which is always resistance. Similarly, Arabic studies, Arabs are very solidly in control. It's in their language and they, they have the adhikar, they have the authority and they'll tell you this is right wrong. Of course, Westerners are always studying them. Nobody, has a, nobody can be stopped. But the, the self-study of the Arabs 
is in their own terms. And similarly, the Iranian studies and Persian language studies is in their own terms. So, for some reason, I mean, for obviously the reasons you guys know, uh, the history of colonialism has been such that the study of uh, India has been controlled from the outside. And I would say India is the, I often say India is the largest uh, civilization whose study is controlled by the by the outside. And it hasn't changed. It, it was acceptable, uh, accepted, I mean it was reasonable during the British time, but things probably have gotten even worse. Because Indians are enthusiastic about being part of the American machinery. Um, so I work with uh, some of the Latin, Latin American type people. I'm interested in China people. There's one, uh, Tu Wemi. His name is Tu Wemi. He's at Harvard, but there he's kind of, it's an outpost, but he's really a Chinese guy in the Chinese university system. And he talks about the Chinese alternative to the Western modernity, <coughs> Western postmodernity. China is Chinese uh, uh, counter to Western universalism. You know, and these kind of things are very big in China. And they're rediscovering their Confucian past and their Taoism. And they have a Chinese Buddhism. Very proud of that. They, their problem is with the, not with Buddhism, but with the headquarters being outside the country. That's their problem. Falun Gong and all these kind of, you know, those East, East Asians are very concerned about uh, any such movement being based outside, whether it's in New York or in India. Anyway, yeah. it's not with the ideology that they need any problem. So, um, so I, I think that the rise of China is a very good thing from the point of view of studying these points, these problems, these issues. Because if there were China, I could not give a good role model of non-Western success. Somebody hanging on to their non-Western identity and being very proud of their non-Western civilization and history, and yet being able to compete with the West on, on, the, on every front. The rise of China gives a good example for Indians. Because, uh, you know, if they weren't China, if you said, okay, West is like this, they, they, they would only look at, okay, there's a Westernization option, otherwise backwardness, primitiveness, you know, our own culture. So that was the, the two-way two option. But now you can show that both China and Japan are great examples of non-Western modernity. I uh, work, I, once I was on a committee where there were Chinese, uh, all Chinese people, Japanese people. And their point was that they consider, they don't consider that they are tradition with West modern and postmodern. They don't consider that. There's one theater group, one fellow who runs a very famous Theater, Chinese theater group in US, in New Jersey, goes around everywhere. And he was telling me, he showed me slides. He said, this slide is traditional dance, Chinese. And he said, there's huge demand for this. I can sell any number of these shows because Americans want to exoticize us. And as long as I'm selling Chinese traditional dance, there's not a market for it. Then he said, this slide shows China modernity, dance. He said they get nervous because now I'm trampling on their turf. Like I have my own way of being modern. They're very concerned. They don't like it. It's oh, okay. We think about it. It's not the real China. It's not like they tell about India. It's not the real China. Yeah, it, it's not. It's sort of like uh, you know, the real China is the other one, the traditional. 
And then he says, when I show the postmodernism, he has whole slideshow on postmodernism, China postmodernism. He says, this actually scares the hell out because then they say, okay, now these guys are really taking over. So that's very interesting. Chinese self-reflection on this issue, on this, uh, the point that I'm, so I, I have been inspired by all kinds of these people. And I uh, wish I could also uh, find collaborators in the social sciences here because I could learn so much from the social sciences people who have formal training. I have uh, lived experience, so I'm a kind of, you might say, anthropologist of American culture, in a sense. I've lived there, seen these sort of things. I'll, uh, uh, basically, I, I also want to say that uh, the Donald Trump syndrome, or whatever you want to call it, uh, is important to understand. Because while you think it's about one man, he's whatever opinion you have, actually it's not about one man. The fact that he's so popular, so many people are supporting him, tells you what the real American people like. Yeah, I mean the fact that such a huge support comes for, and you know, actually this support percentage-wise is understated because a lot more people will come out uh, that are secretly not for the money to sort of come out to get. So that is the under the surface. There is that. So you have to keep that in mind. Why is it there? Why does it pop out in times of distress, times of tension? Why is there xenophobia? What is going on? And you have to study the history of whiteness in America. When you study the history of whiteness, it's the history of America. Because America, America is land of immigrants. Different countries brought immigrants in different ways. First from here, then there, then there. And they came under different circumstances. The blacks came under different circumstances than other people did. Uh, Indians very recently. So each wave of immigrants had to negotiate with whiteness. Whiteness is not about skin color. It's a certain brand, identity, way of life, sense of who we are. To understand whiteness, uh, you should read a book called How the Irish Became White. How the Irish Became White. Very interesting book, uh, which shows that when the Civil War ended and there was no more slavery allowed, blacks could go out and get free jobs. So obviously they were undercutting the wages of whites because these blacks were available with lesser salary. They were now able to work. So whites organized unions white only unions. There's no law against a union saying we exclude them. So white unions in different skills, you might think of them as castes in a sense because they're all professionally and they're by birth white. So these white only unions control the labor market and they would get these uh, union contracts so to keep blacks out. For a very long time it went on like this. Now, Irish were in a peculiar situation. Obviously, they're not blacks. But Ireland was colonized by England. So when Irish immigrants came to the United States, the Englishman who was running the show in a club, in a, in a, uh, uh, white, in a white uh, labor union, wasn't going to allow Irish to join as equal status. So Irish immigrants were excluded from membership 
in white labor unions. Therefore, they were not whites. That's in terms of job, in terms of labor, social status, they were not whites. They were uh, white uh, clubs, pubs, where it would say, dogs and Irish not allowed. This is huge, you can read up all this stuff. A lot of this people <coughs> against, against uh, Irish people. And then there was uh, some violence went on in Philadelphia and other places in the 1800s, where uh, Irish tried to get, physically get into these places. They were not allowed to. There was a lot of violence. And that is when uh, it was decided that Irish should be allowed in the uh, labor unions. And that is how the Irish became white. Became white from that point of view. And then there's uh, another book, how, how the Jews Became White Folks, written by a Jewish person, uh, Karen Brodkin or something, an anthropologist in UCLA, who wrote that uh, until her grandparents' generation, they didn't think of themselves as white people. And so uh, this whole, so the, the point being that a new group has to negotiate, are we white, how do we become white, what does it take, or are we non-white, if we're non-white, who are we? So blacks found the hard way that they are the, they are the only ones who cannot become white. It's not our option. Because the slavery, the baggage, the, the whole thing was so intense. They tried to become white and did not have their own civil rights uh, movement. They let whites uh, run the show of uh, black rights. They, the whites were championing the blacks. They didn't have their own leaders. And they got burned because during the during a big depression in the late 1800s, uh, there was this Jim Crow, the Ku Klux Klan came up, all that started to kind of push them back. Because listen, we freed you from being slaves, but don't think you're equal to us. You must know how far you can go. So that kind of a pushback So then the blacks decided that we're going to have our own leaders. We'll have we have black power. We'll have we we don't want to become whites. We will create a black core of society which will demand its own stature. And uh, they have done that very successfully. They're very proud to be. They have their own music, their culture, their fashions, their language. Their now it's cool to be blacks. In fact, their fashion among whites to do hip hop and all that and fake that they are blacks and all that because it's cool. So blacks have created this non-white space. Uh, Hispanics are confused. There's a big argument among Hispanics, are we white or not? And you find those who think that this whole Hispanic movement is not good, they should assimilate. And you can't even tell because they look like whites and you can't tell, but many of them are Cubans or you know from various Latin American backgrounds. And then you find the Hispanic movement, the marker they are hanging on to is language. The Spanish language is the marker, having it as an equal second language, gives them the stature as a separate distinct community. So with the blacks as uh, certainly a pole against resisting whiteness and the Hispanics sort of in that mode also to a large extent. You have a very interesting dynamic. The question is, what happens to people like Indians? So one of the books I'm writing is how the Indians are becoming white. This is about elitism, about Indians wanting to join the club. It is about Indians wanting to think they are white or almost white. Their application is pending. You come through one day. This sort of a, this sort of a thing. Deep complexes that Indians have. This is the, this is the complex of some of our billionaires trying to set up these institutions, and so on over there. You know, so, so elitism here is linked to the 
diaspora elitism and complexes also. It goes on. So um, I could go on, but I I I, I, I just uh, think that maybe we 